I'm Jade Calloway. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for nearly 10 years now. I was born just two months before Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait in August 1990. In this series, I've been learning all about the 1991 Gulf War by hearing from those who fought in it. This war is now behind us. Ahead of us is the difficult task of securing a potentially historic peace. The last morning of the war, there were something like 150 tanks, is what it felt like, in line abreast. I looked to the left, to the right, and nothing but tanks in a great big line. They didn't get the Q80 oil fields, so what they couldn't have, they destroyed and set them all on fire. Those who were there had come through it unscathed, and they now wished to go home to their families and their friends and their domestic life. And those are moments that live in your mind forever. This is Granby. The storm in the desert. Now half past 11 in the morning, it looks like we've just had our first casualty because of a blue-on-blue strike. American M1A1 came and engaged Victor 2-1 and 2-2 who were trying to take some EBWs. This is Lieutenant Colonel Tim Perbrick's cassette recording from the back of his Challenger tank. Unbelievable. The first casualty would have to be a... That friendly fire incident is something he remembers clearly to this day. As we were moving into Kuwait, we were right on the border with the US division to our north, and our recce troop was doing the right thing, which was marking that border to ensure that our flank was protected and that there was no interaction across that border. Several minutes later, a call came over the battle group net from recce troop that they'd been engaged and it transpired that American tank troop had taken out one of our recce vehicles, injured two people quite badly, which required a helicopter Kazivak to be brought in. And it was a bit of a shock. And the only casualties that we were suffering in this war appeared to be coming from our own side, from blue on blue. And there's no such thing as friendly fire because all fire is unfriendly. Ground forces were making swift progress, but on the penultimate day of the war, there was another blue-on-blue incident. Colour Sergeant Mick McCarthy remembers his battalion of the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers suffering a significant loss. We had two of our warrior armoured fighting vehicles attacked by American A-10 Thunderbolt aircraft. We lost nine soldiers in that attack. That sticks in my mind quite, quite a lot, obviously. I mean, I wasn't on the spot where that happened, but I was aware that it happened shortly afterwards. And I, I heard it happen. I heard the, the firing and I heard on the radio traffic, you know, that the, um, the battalion thought that the vehicles had gone over some mines at first and stuff. And uh, But none of us knew what, what actually had happened for, for quite a while afterwards, because obviously we just had to fight on and carry on pushing through and it weren't until you sort of you get to an assembly area or something and you start coming in contact with other people but it had no there was no opportunity to sort of dwell on anything because straight away we were off on, on another on another part of our mission and on that occasion which was a night attack so but I think that's probably the thing that most sticks with most of us who are out there and as part of that battle group was losing those guys that day. Station controller of BFBS Middle East, Jonathan Bennett, recalls the inevitable knock to morale. There was a lot of anger on the British side, tremendous amount of anger. 
because it was believed to have been completely avoidable. I remember there was a story during the rounds, visibility had been bad, but the British guys who were up there, and I knew one of them very well, said it was fine, you could see for miles. And it was a really tricky thing to handle in our live programs. Quite a few of the British soldiers came to see us and expected us to have a go at the Americans on air, and it was hard not to. I remember having to tell Dave Boyle and Glenn Mansell, my fellow presenters, not to indulge in it. The news bulletins were full of it, of course, but we didn't know exactly what had happened. So I remember having to really force them to tone it down. We acknowledged it, expressed condolences, but that was it. There were no further references to it. We didn't play stupid songs aimed at the Americans. We just got on with the job of entertaining, etc. But it was, it was hard to do, very, very hard to do. One thing I remember really well that we did, and I'm very proud of this, I had a, a real concern about reading out a message on air from the family or friends of somebody who'd been killed. These things were mailed in from the UK, Germany, wherever, so it took days for them to reach us, and a lot could happen in that transit time. And had we read one out, it would have been oh, soul-destroying for the unit involved and for us. So I managed to persuade the guys in the headquarters to release the names of anybody killed or not expected to survive as soon as they were known. We'd then check every message we got, and we got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and we checked them all. And then you had to go on air and be the cheerful forces DJ guy. I think it's a fact that many media presenters are good actors, because you've got to be. Someone else putting on a brave face was Army nurse Lance Corporal Karen Sanders Crook, who found that treating friends arriving in the field hospital was one of the most difficult calls of duty. It was tough and you kind of look and you recognise that person and they recognise you, you clock eyes, nothing is said. Oh, and I can feel the emotions coming up in me now and you just kind of look and you say, it's going to be okay. And you just pull together and you get through it. And you didn't have to be on the front line to see the devastation of a scud attack. SAC Simon Crimp from the Mobile Catering Support Unit was at Duran in Saudi Arabia. I think probably one of the most devastating things I did see out there was a week after my 23rd birthday. I think it was around 25th of February. That night, I was doing some shopping in the neighbouring town, Al-Kabar. On our return, there was a lot of commotion, a lot of police vehicles, military vehicles everywhere. And normally, there would be air raid sirens if we suspected maybe a scud missile was going to come down, perhaps. On that particular night, there was just a big flash of light. The window shattered. A scud missile had come down and it had just totally obliterated the barracks. I think the last body count I heard was around 28 people. And it was pretty devastating because all these guys that went, they were all reserves and they'd only been in theater an hour. on the 28th and uh, we suddenly had orders in the middle of the night uh, to advance eastwards very very fast to do a VCP and investigate a barracks. The last morning of the war we all woke up and everyone was starting their tanks. There was massive amounts of shouting going on. Clearly there was a flap on and we needed to find out what it was. And the orders came that we had an hour to move 40 kilometers from our position to the Basra road that ran between Kuwait city to the Iraqi city of Basra, just across the border. 
otherwise we were going to fail to be there by the time of the UN deadline which was set for the end of the war and we had something like 150 tanks is what it felt like in line abreast I looked to the left to the right and nothing but tanks in a great great big line and we led this charge of the heavy brigade which must be the fastest and longest cavalry charge in history and we arrived at the Basra road just on the hour. Also tracking into enemy territory was tank commander Corporal David Garrigan. Crossing into Iraq, when we crossed that berm into Iraq, I remember, my crew probably don't remember because they probably want to wipe it from their memory, but I remember giving my little State of the Union address to them saying I'd do everything I could to get them through it because we were all scared, we were all apprehensive about what was going to happen. The apprehension when you're travelling into another country, invading another country, I mean that's pretty awesome at the best of times, but I thought this is just now the culmination of everything that we've been building up for for the last four and a half, five months. It was a feeling of this is something that will sort of live with me forever, the fact that I've invaded another country and I still 100% agree with why we went. I don't have any problems with why we went. I think it was 100% the right reason, but it felt like a an incredible moment in my life to be able to go and do that. Sort of up there with the birth of my daughter almost as a moment to remember. No people around here at all. We've just passed, uh, come over a road where an abandoned BMP was. Um, we're not quite sure what the scenario is up ahead, so we're, we're, we're cracking on. We didn't know that that was going to be the end, but it was being announced on the radio because we immediately turned our radios on. We'd pulled up in this position. We wanted to know what was going on. We heard that President Bush had called the end of the war. So we started to get the feeling that this was our closing moments or the moment had closed already on the war. At midnight tonight, Eastern Standard Time, exactly 100 hours since ground operations commenced and six weeks since the start of Operation Desert Storm, all United States and coalition forces will suspend offensive combat operations. Major General Patrick Cordingly was commander of 7th Armoured Brigade, the Desert Rats. When it all ends at 8 o'clock in the morning, you say to all your outstations, right, get all together, get round into your leaguers, and sort yourselves out, you know, get the tanks, anything that needs mending, get ready. This is a ceasefire. We don't know if we stopped completely, but just relax, get out. Don't have to need your NBC kit on any longer and just generally calm down. And don't go roaming around the battlefield looking for souvenirs at this stage, as indeed inevitably soldiers would um, and did later on, and you can't blame them for doing that. Just get rested, just in case we're told to do something else. Lieutenant Colonel Danny Wilde was a troop sergeant in the 14th 20th King's Hussars, part of 4th Armoured Brigade. I'd say relief. Relief and surprise. Relief that if this is it, we've come through pretty much unscathed. And surprise that um, it had been four days. But very happy and pleasantly surprised that it had only been four days. And as the fifth day came and we'd had 24 hours of not engaging, but more importantly, not being engaged, and the next day, and the next day, um, I think after a week we knew that nothing was going to be coming south for quite some time again, if at all. But was it the right time for a ceasefire? 
I'd argue then, and indeed now, and always have done, it was the right moment to stop. We had destroyed a lot of the Iraqi army, not all of it, and but it was, from a soldier's point of view, it sounds path not pathetic to say, it was an honourable moment to stop. The enemy had been defeated. If we went on, we were just going to kill a lot of people. We killed a lot of people anyway, although we tried to be later on, in the second and third and fourth day, we tried not to kill all that many people, but we did kill people, not unnecessarily. That's what you have to do when you advance very quickly. But I think we all felt enough was enough and let the politicians and diplomacy sort out what's going to happen next. Lord King was one of those politicians. And it seems the Defence Secretary didn't quite agree. If we'd gone on another 24 hours, the left hook would have got round a bit further. Uh, one Republican Guard division certainly would have been trapped. Uh, and uh, they were the key, they were the core of Saddam's army. And th that proved to be pretty expensive or punishing for the Kurds and for the Shia, the Marsh Arabs and others, who tried to rise up afterwards. Uh, against Saddam, and then because they still had these Republican Guard divisions, uh, they were pretty severely punished. If we'd taken one more division out by getting round the left of 24 hours, which I think it would have been longer, it might have made Saddam a lot quieter and uh, really avoided the need for the Second Gulf War. It's estimated 250 members of Allied forces were killed as a direct result of enemy action. Most of the fatalities were American. 47 of them were British. While we were training and getting ready to fight, I remember saying to the media, there are a lot of people going to die. And trying to explain then, which didn't work because they didn't bother to report it, that it wasn't going to be our casualties. But if you've got two armies, then it was about 300,000 on one side and half a million on the other. These two armies are going to meet inevitably a lot of people are going to die, but they won't be asked for better training, better equipment, etc. Former Prime Minister Sir John Major. As it happened, the casualties were infinitely less than our very best projections, infinitely less. Every fatal casualty is a disaster for families and friends. But the fact that there were so relatively few was a great relief at the end of the hostilities. According to the Imperial War Museum, between 20,000 and 35,000 Iraqi soldiers died during the ground war. Civilian deaths resulting from the conflict are estimated at between 100,000 and 200,000. On arrival in Kuwait, British troops witnessed scenes of devastation. The Iraqis certainly raped the kingdom of a lot of things. And to top it off, they didn't succeed in annexing Kuwait as part of Iraq. They didn't get the Kuwaiti oil fields, so what they couldn't have, they destroyed and set them all on fire. Arriving down in Kuwait from our position of overwatch, I do recall passing the desalination plant that they'd done a lot of destruction on. The retreating Iraqi forces, they blew up the oil wells, they blew up the Kuwaiti oil wells, which was very dramatic to see because, of course, they were shooting flame into the sky. And what would have been, as it always is in the Persian Gulf, extremely hot weather with clear blue skies was very, very dark, like you would imagine 
the end of the world might look like. It looked as if it was going to be polluted forever. So that was very dramatic and the temperature was quite chilly to be there because you were under this thick smoke cloud level. You didn't see many people about, so it was very ghost-like in the streets. When they'd set fire to all the oil wells, that was pretty horrible. That was a pretty disgusting experience. We were tasked to go from Riyadh to Jabal and then Jabal to Kuwait. We couldn't get above 450 feet because of the oil smoke and we were picking up oil on the windscreen and it was a hell of a sight and the smell was incredible. And when we landed at Kuwait International Airport, all the wrecks of cars that had been blocking the taxiways and the runways were all stacked up as we taxied through. We parked close to what was the main terminal. It really was a sight to behold. The wreckage of the British Airways 747, there was the wreckage of a, a 727, burnt out vehicles and holes in walls everywhere. Sir John Major paid two visits to troops in the Gulf. I remember standing on Challenger tanks and talking to literally hundreds of servicemen and women who were gathered round. I remember they were holding placards. Hi, Mum. Can I go home now? Am I paid enough for this? Um, and they were in high good spirits. And then I remember after the conflict was over, going back and speaking to them again, when I made the most popular sentence I or any other Prime Minister has made for generations, which was simply, you'll be home soon. And you could, uh, you could tell from the reaction that these young people had been through a great experience. Those who were there had come through it unscathed and they now wished to go home to their families and their friends and their domestic life. And those are moments that live in your mind forever. For some, it was now time to pack up and go home. But for army nurse Karen, home wasn't quite the same as she'd left it. We went out attached to BMH Hanover, but when we came back, Munster had moved to Iselone. So we drew up in the coach to BMH Munster and it was in darkness and we just cracked up laughing because we thought, do they know that we're coming and they've just turned all the lights off? And then it was like, go and knock on the door and see if they would let us in. But of course they'd moved. And for whatever reason, the poor chappy that was driving us, there was a miscommunication and we ended up at BMH Munster and it was in complete lockdown. It was months after and I was standing in a bar and it was that sketch that you see on the TV, you know, the barman comes up and he puts this drink in front of me and he says, there's a drink for you there from the guy at the end of the bar. And you just think, oh, aye, aye, what's going on here, you know? And I looked and as I looked down, this guy just kind of raised his glass to me to say cheers. And I picked up the drink and said cheers and I thought I'm gonna to have to go and find out what this is all about so I went and spoke to him and I didn't recognize him and he said to me thank you and I said you know what's the thanks for and he said you don't remember and I said no and he said I was in the Gulf he said and you nursed me and I was there at the time with my boyfriend who's now my husband and he was like you know who's that bloke you know the way that they do who's that bloke and I went oh I nursed him in the golf and he was like oh so then of course he went over and started talking to him so there is the sharing of a unique experience that nobody else can tap into and it doesn't matter where you go if you shared that experience there's almost like an invisible bond that will still keep you together because you can try and explain to family 
family and to people living in civilian life what it was like but they will never ever be able to grasp the atmosphere and the fact that you were basically living on a knife edge because you didn't know whether you were going to come back. Colour Sergeant Mick McCarthy didn't go home for a while. Our battle group had to wait out in theatre until that group came out. So we were out there probably about a month longer than everybody else. So we had a bit more time to, to think about what we'd just done. We were still living in quite sort of austere situation then. We were, we were in a big factory complex in Q8 itself. Um, but we had plenty of time to think about getting home. So um, by the time it did come round, yeah, we were, we were really, really pleased. And we had a massive party and continued to party for a long time afterwards. And at sea, Petty Officer Robert Hunter's work on board HMS Heckler was just about to begin. Us and the other minesweepers from the Royal Navy, and there was an international force with the minesweeping, they expected the area of the sea around Kuwait to have been mined by the Iraqi forces. And then after the Iraqi forces were driven out of Kuwait, it was then that we were prepared to check the harbour and the coast for mines, sea mines. The RAF continued to have a presence in the Gulf long after the war had ended. Chief Tech Jeff Brown was a ground engineer on the C-130 Hercules. You still had northern and southern watch, all the no-fly zones, everything was still in place. And then it trailed off into 2003 when it all kicked off again. And tornado navigator Mal Craghill was one of those patrolling the Iraqi no-fly zone. If you stayed on the tornado force long enough, you you found yourself back in the Gulf, which was quite strange because when we left in '91, we thought that would be the back of it. But I was uh, I was back there in in 90, end of '92 into the beginning of '93. Mm. You know, having joined a Cold War air force, I found myself in an air force that the Cold War evaporated in front of my eyes, and uh, and I spent most of my operational career out in the Gulf. And it's tempting to think to look at it with with rose tinted glasses and think the tornado never let me down. And in in a sense, it never let me down because I, I never had to part company with the aircraft during flight. Every, everyone will have their their stories of things that went wrong in the aircraft or engine failures or fires or whatever they might be. But they're not the things that you think of when you look back on it. One crew who had parted ways with their aircraft were John Peters and John Nicholl. The captured airmen who'd spent most of the conflict in a Baghdad jail were eventually released after the ceasefire. John Peters says it still isn't clear what went wrong on the day they crash-landed in the desert. What are the, what are the parameters? First of all, we're both dull. Secondly, John was dull, he didn't hit the right button, uh, maybe. Then I've got a letter at home saying, well, below a certain height, a certain speed, and this, that, and the other, distance out from thing, if you work out your tans and cosines and all that sort of stuff, uh, the computer just dumps anyway. You know, our war is not about dropping bombs. There are a lot of very smart pilots who do fantastic things and I have every respect. I regret, that's my biggest regret from my war. I don't give a damn about being a prisoner or never bothered me at all. It bothers me that I fail to live up to expectations. And if you said, uh, whose fault is it? Well, it's my aircraft. It's long been accepted that wartime is a catalyst for medical advancement. Nurse Karen Sanders-Crook believes this conflict has led to a greater understanding of both physical and mental injuries. 
I think there is a legacy around battlefield trauma and the life support. There's lots of things that have come out of that. Battlefield techniques that we've been able to use and take forward. So, you know, not only was it a strange and unusual experience, but a huge opportunity for learning and certainly PTSD. I think it is recognised more. But I think what we need to keep doing is raising the profile of it and making it part of everyday conversation. Karen is adding to that conversation herself. She's written a book called Behind the Smiles, which shares real life accounts, tips and strategies that she hopes will help families like her own. I wrote the book from my experience of supporting my husband and my family going through PTSD and suddenly became very, very aware that there's lots of information out there for people going through PTSD. There's lots of information out there for families to support the person going through PTSD, but there's very little information about how the families get through it. And PTSD doesn't just stay with the person that's experiencing it. It filters out and it affects your friends, your family, the people that you would normally come into contact with on a day-to-day basis, your work. It filters into everything. And one of the reasons that I wrote the book is because I don't think that family coping mechanism and strategy has been addressed properly. There are many marriages I know that have failed because, you know, God love them, the wives or the husbands just can't cope with trying to support that individual anymore. And it's because they've not been given the right tools to be able to do that, or they found it difficult to access the resources at the time that they needed. So we've got to keep pushing those boundaries. Many servicemen and women are still dealing with health issues 30 years on. Then Chief Technician Jeff Brown feels he knows what was to blame. The only thing that was bad practice, I believe, is the multiple vaccinations. And subsequently, the aftermath is that a lot of personnel became mysteriously ill. I think that's one of the bad aftermaths, and unfortunately, nothing's really been done about it. I've been diagnosed with the umbrella term of Gulf War Syndrome. And on leaving the Royal Air Force in 2000, I joined the National Gulf Veterans and Families Association, which is the only charity that specifically looks after the problems that personnel encounter from their um, time in the Gulf War. I've been a member since 1999, but I was asked if I'd like to become a trustee seven years ago, and now, In my position, I see how hard the charity works. We cover all the services. It covers civilian contractors and the civilian marine personnel as well. And we try to give them as much advice and support about everything to do with ill health from the Gulf War. That includes pension claims, subsequent tribunals, any other support claims that may be uh, possible for them. Research by the Royal British Legion suggests up to 33,000 British veterans could be living with Gulf War syndrome. For many years, it was thought that exposure to depleted uranium was to blame. But new research by scientists at the University of Portsmouth has ruled that out. They believe the most likely cause of the illness was the low-level but widespread exposure to the sarin nerve agent which was widely released when troops destroyed caches of Iraqi chemical weapons. 
Professor Randall Parrish reckons the vaccinations and the use of pesticides to control malaria probably played a part too. Organophosphate compounds look to be primarily responsible because from a disease and, and compound and toxin point of view, there are linkages between them that are sensible. You know, it could be pesticides, it could be the sarin nerve agent, it could be, you know, other kinds of, of things. For example, soldiers were given injections to prevent them from having the symptoms of chemical weapons exposure. That could also be part of the mix. But I think because it's known there was a chronic widespread exposure to low-level sarin, it's a perfectly plausible explanation, and that is by far the most toxic of the compounds. Gulf War syndrome isn't the only question mark that hangs over this conflict. You could argue that would they have done the same to remove Saddam Hussein from some poor African country? I don't know. I can't answer that. Possibly not. We all know that Kuwait was a rich country and it had oil and oil was a big deal then. And it still is a big deal, possibly to a lesser degree, but it's still a big part of our lives. But um, in my own mind, it was fairly straightforward that he had to be removed and, and he was, and that was the end of it. Should he have been removed from power? Well, there we are. You know, we can, like, like so many things in history or recent history, it will be debated probably for the rest of our lives, you know. Regime change was not the objective, nor was it mandated by the UN. Saddam remained in power although weakened and under heavy sanctions. Sir John Major says it led to a new world order. I think for quite a while it had a very big impact. If you consider what was happening at the time, a year or so earlier, the Soviet Union had imploded. That great rival of the West, that great hostile rival to the West, had crumbled into individual nation states, leaving Russia infinitely less powerful and less damaging to the world than the Soviet Union had been. China was beginning to rise, but not remotely to the extent that she was going to in the next 20 or 30 years. So the successful conduct of the Gulf War left America in particular, but the West more generally, in a much more authoritative position than it had been before. America in particular was seen as an international peacekeeper. Now that lasted for quite a long time. It was pretty severely damaged because the Second Gulf War in the early part of this century was far less popular around the world than the first one. Many people were much less satisfied about the justification for it. And so with the rise of China and the beginning of the return of Russia to be mischievous again, it began to eat away at American dominance and has done so ever since. British troops returned to Iraq 12 years later. Coalition forces eventually toppled Saddam Hussein but the West's involvement in the region has continued ever since. There plainly isn't stability now, and we're, we're some way away from it, not least because of the irritations and difficulties caused by Iran next door, who are forever stirring the pot. And there are internal rivalries within Iraq as well, which we can't control and can ultimately only be solved by the Iraqis themselves. But will it ever be solved? Well, ever is a very long time. I would certainly hope so. And I think I would be optimistic enough to believe so, but I don't think it's going to be imminent. I think in years to come, 
people may say we spent far too much time in that part of the world. I'm told I was the youngest tornado air crew in the war. The whole thing was just a huge learning experience. I suppose what I took away from the conflict overall was the importance of teamwork and putting your trust in somebody else. When it started, everybody got on with it. Everybody was calm, everybody was professional, and the training kicked in. And I was very proud of my team at the end of the war for what we'd actually achieved. The way that we as soldiers had learned and had developed and had taken on board so much sat with me for a long time after that. It really gave me a lot of grounding for going on to do what I did afterwards. The Gulf War was yet another experience in my time as a ground engineer. Adventures, could I call them, in the nine years I flew. I'll never forget it. It was an experience. There were mistakes. We're still suffering from the mistakes. But um, <clears throat> we were there to do our duty. We knew about Saddam's regime and the cruelty he inflicted on people. And so, yes, there was that conversation. And John and I were in a pub one night going, you know, if we ever got captured, I said, I'll shoot him. And he turned around and said, no, I'll shoot you. And it was just a joke in the bar because you never think it's going to be you. And obviously for us, it was. When you're there and you might not come back, you start thinking, well, actually, there's not much in life that's really that important compared to this, so why do we let ourselves get stressed and anxious over tiny things? I'm glad that the people I was involved with, no one was hurt. The Falklands War, you know, there was lots of people hurt, lots of people killed. So it was in your mind as a serving member of the Navy. But fortunately, in the Gulf War, to me and for Everybody I worked with, we all came home safely, so that was the good thing. For me, the experience of deploying and being in that situation is probably the biggest thing of my career. When I spent 38 years in the Army, it was the biggest thing I had done up to then. And even though I've deployed various places, Afghanistan, Bosnia, and all the rest of it, it still is the biggest thing that I ever did. We'd beaten Soviet tactics with an almighty thump. Berlin Wall came down, 1991, Warsaw Pact, in. We were part of that. We were part of the event because years later, well, there's no Germany any longer, is there? No BOR, no BFG. So I think Gulf War One was the start of that process. I was always gung-ho, eager and keen to serve my country. That's always been in me. But after that experience, being there is something when you've been so close to putting your life on the line, and being one of the lucky ones to come home. I just appreciate things more, I guess. You never know what's gonna happen. This is going to sound terrible. I remember it, if not every day, every week, but you've got to move on and you can't be guided by the past. Otherwise it will drive you into the ground. There are lots of people out there that will probably just want to keep it in a box. They might want to say, yes, you know, I was there, but it's yes, I was there, full stop, end of conversation. I was there too, and I think we just have to respect that, don't we? It was short and sharp, and we'd survived. And more importantly, we'd achieved the objective. We had liberated Kuwait, and that was the end of our war. This is a BFBS podcast produced by me, Jade Calloway and Jess Bracey with interviews from our friends at Forces News. Special thanks go to all the Op Granby veterans who got in touch and shared their stories. 
Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden, and our editor is Josella Waldron. 